Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right. All right. All right. Let's get to it. First Timothy chapter 3 is where we find ourselves this morning as we're working our way through Paul's letter to this young pastor, Timothy, in the New Testament. Timothy is the pastor of a city, Ephesus, which is the recipient of the letter, Ephesians, later on, in, or actually earlier in the Bible, as far as chronologically, or as far as the order of the way the books line up in our Bible. And the scene is, is that Paul has planted a church in the city of Ephesus, which was on the coast of modern-day Turkey. It was a pagan, idolatrous, uh, false God-worshipping city. And Paul, in one of his missionary, one of his later missionary journeys in Acts chapter 19, took the gospel, planted the gospel in Ephesus, and it completely disrupted and turned the culture of the city upside down because that's what the gospel, that's what the good news, that's what the reign and rule of Christ does. It confronts false gods in our culture, and those false gods still exist today. And so there was a great riot, and Paul continued to teach the word, and then, as was his custom, he continued on in his missionary journey, And he left this young man, Timothy, to pastor and to lead and to mold this church in Ephesus. And this letter, 1 Timothy, and then he writes another one, 2 Timothy, are letters that Paul is writing to him about instruction about what the local church should look like. And underneath all of that is this greater purpose for these letters, not just how the church should be organized and how it should run and who should lead it and what it should look like and how the people should treat one another and what good doctrine is and the responsibilities of the leaders and the qualifications of the leaders, which we're going to cover today. All that's very, very important, obviously, but it is all pointing to a deeper purpose in that Paul is saying to Timothy and to the church, to us today, that the purpose of the local church is to be a picture, a representation of the gospel itself, what Christians believe and hold to is the truth, the good news that God, who's holy, has sent his son, Jesus, who is fully God, fully man, to die on the cross, to bear his wrath, to rise again in victory over sin, death, and the grave, so that all who would trust not in themselves but in Christ can be reconciled to their holy God creator. That's the message of the Bible. That's the message of the gospel. It's the most important news in the universe. And Paul is telling Timothy that the church exists not for itself, but to put on display that great and glorious news. In fact, in his letter to this church in Ephesians, in Ephesians 3 verse 10, he says that the purpose of the church is to display the manifold wisdom of God. And so we've been working through this, past, this letter, and we find ourselves in 1 Timothy 3, where Paul turns his attention to give Timothy instruction on who should lead the church and what their qualifications or characteristics should be. And he is encouraging Timothy to look for men that meet these qualifications and to, to have them lead the church. And so we're going to talk about leadership in the local church This is what primarily chapter 3 is about. Elders 
and deacons. Today we're just going to handle the first seven verses. And so let me give you a heads up, a road map of where we're going. There's three questions that we want to handle today as we work through this text. One is that who are elders? Who are elders? Two, what do elders do? What do elders do? And then three, what is at stake? What's, what's, what's at stake in us understanding this well? So who are elders? What do they do? And what's at stake? And then we'll work our way back through that. Let me read 1 Timothy 3, and then we'll pray and work back through it. And this is, uh, this is particularly personal for me because this, this text is, is one of the ones in the Bible that I have considered most in my life, that this is really saying that the standards that I and the other pastors, elders at this church should meet and live up to. And in one sense, who is sufficient for these things, right? We will all fail. James 4, 2 says we all stumble in many ways. And as I read this passage, I think about even my own life and how there are areas where I am not certainly in an optimal way living up to any of these things. But yet God in his kindness, uh, despite us, works through us. And so uh, this, is, this, is a, this is a personal, a personal Sunday for me. Let, me. let me read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Well, let's pray, and let's ask the Lord to help us. And as Will prayed for us before, I, I, I want to add my prayers to uh, God's grace on our nation, and in particular for the men and women, military men and women in this church, and policemen and firemen in our congregation who, who serve us so, so admirably. Uh, thank God for, for you, uh, you civil servants and military personnel. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are to you for your word, for the, the community of faith, the local church, for the bride of Christ. May we be people that cherish your bride, that love your bride, that are not critical or cynical or sarcastic about your bride. You have begun a good work in her, and that's all of us that are trusting in Christ. Who are we to be judgmental over it or dismissive of it. May you develop in this congregation a greater love for the church, for the body of Christ, not just this particular church, but churches all around our city and all around this world. I thank you for other gospel-believing local churches in our city. I thank you for Piney Grove Baptist Church up on River Road in 315, and I pray for your grace to them as they gather this morning. Lord, I, I thank you for St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church and for your 
grace to them and my friend Bill Douglas who pastors there, I pray that the gospel would be preached clearly today in that beautiful expression of the local church. Lord, as we turn our attention to this text, we think about the chapter before where it says that we are to offer prayers for all kings and all who are in high positions and the people that serve us. We pray for our nation, for our president, for our Congress and Senate, for our governor, for our local officials, and we pray that you would give them wisdom and grace and that you would protect them and that you would use their imperfect leadership to be a source of blessing to our society. In particular, we remember the great tragedy that is now 15 years ago in our country, and we thank you for men and women that are part of this congregation or that over the years have come through that have put themselves in harm's way in uh, places across the world where wicked men are doing horrible things and yet men and women in our military are willing to lay down their lives for us. We are so grateful for them. Grateful for the people in this room that have deployed numerous times in combat on our behalf. I thank you for policemen and firemen who serve our city, who, who in the current cultural climate that we live in oftentimes are carrying out their duties in near impossible environments and situations where tension is high and decisions have to be made in a moment's notice. Lord, give them grace and let them know that they are prayed for and appreciated and that we are thankful for them. And thank you, Lord, for leadership in the local church. May we understand it better because the stakes are high. The gospel is at hand. The church exists not for itself, but to lift up the name of Jesus for an onlooking world who needs Christ. So help us think deeply and wisely about these things. Do your will among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Question number one as we look at this text is who are elders? Well, the first thing that I want us to realize is that when the New Testament uses the word elders, it's not speaking about necessarily an older man. That ten, tends to be what we would think of in English. An elder would be a, like somebody who's um, older. <laughs> somebody's like, a, okay, somebody say not. No, I got it. Move on. Um, they didn't want me to give any ages, although I'm, I'm getting close to that elder chronological age. That is not what is in view here. It, it's, it's more of a spiritual position of leadership in the church, not necessarily the chronological age of a particular person. And when you see this word elder, I want you to realize that in the New Testament, it is synonymous with several other words. So uh, we just read from 1 Timothy 3, where it mentions overseers. And when you see that word overseer in the New Testament in several places, or the word pastor, which is actually used just very infrequently in the New Testament, I think just a few times in Ephesians chapter 4, and maybe one other place, all of those words, elder, pastor, overseer, are synonymous words that are speaking about the same role or office in the local church. So the first thing that we want to see as we look at this, look at this list is that elders are mature examples of the Christian life. Uh, a a very well-known New Testament scholar who's a present-day leader in the church and professor, his name is D.A. Carson, he remarks and has said very notably about this 
passage of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 is that it is remarkable in how unremarkable it is. Did you notice that, that Paul is just commending men who are just good examples? He's saying these are the men that should be the leaders of the church, but he doesn't mention anything that stands out like they need to be great orators, they need to have a bunch of charisma, they need to have strong personalities, they need to have a bunch of leadership experience in the world. No, he just says that they need to be men of good character. They need to be good examples of what it means to follow Christ. And to some degree, actually to a great degree, we want this to be true of every man in the church. These, this list of qualifications that we're going to work through a little bit more closely here in a second isn't a list of superhero spiritual traits. It's just a list of men who seem to be a good example of what it means to follow Jesus. Not perfect examples, not superhuman Christians, but just good examples of what it means to follow Jesus. And so let's, let's just work our way back through this list and, and look at this very briefly. In verse 1 there, he says that this is a trustworthy saying that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So first, the, a man that serves as an elder or an overseer or a pastor needs to have a, a sense of calling and aspiration and that this is a noble task. There needs to be something inside of him that he's saying, yes, I believe that God is calling me to serve the church in this way. And then in verse 2, he says that an overseer must be above reproach doesn't mean that he is sinless. Of course, <laughs> what man is except for Christ? But it means that he has a good reputation. He's the type of man who doesn't have great gaps in his spiritual maturity or his walk with Christ that can be used as a, a, a really a criticism of the Christian life. He is a man that has a good track record of following Christ and being above reproach. It says that he is the husband of one wife. And I think that in the, maybe more literally, this, that, that passage might be interpreted that he is a one woman kind of man. I don't think that it means that an elder necessarily has to be married. Paul himself was, was not married. Jesus himself was, was not married. And historically, Christians have interpreted this verse. I think the majority of Christians have interpreted this verse through the centuries as not meaning that it disqualifies single men from being an elder, although I think most men that are elders, pastors, will be married because there's just something sanctifying about marriage. There's, and <laughs> my wife is laughing. I'm, I mean, for her, there's certainly something sanctifying for her about being married to me, there's no doubt about that, and you don't have to agree too enthusiastically. But we see it, marriage is one of the clearest pictures of the gospel. And in Ephesians chapter 5, there's this wonderful teaching, the most extended teaching of the Apostle Paul on marriage in the Bible, where he says that marriage is a picture of the relationship, marriage between a man and a woman is to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. And so if you're a young man aspiring to marriage or you're a young husband wondering what marriage should be, feast and marinate your soul on Ephesians chapter 5. Marriage is a wonderful proving ground for a man's spiritual maturity. And what is going on here is Paul is saying that a man needs to be a faithful husband. He's not a flirt. He's not the type of guy who's 
Sexual desire is out of bounds. He is a good example. His sexual energy is focused on his wife if he is married. He is to be sober-minded. He's a clear thinker. He's not given to great fluctuations of mood and he's not sort of manic in the way that he makes decisions. He's able to hear difficult, troubling things and he's able to absorb it. He's not an excitable and combustible personality. He is a shock absorber in many ways. Think of a wheel and a chassis of a car and uh, a road that is full of potholes and, and, and bumps and speed bumps. And it's very uneven and rocky. If you're riding in a car that has no shock absorbers, that is a tough ride. But if you're riding in a car that has good shock absorbers, that lessens the shock so that those who are riding in the car have a smoother ride. And the leadership of an elder should function as a kind of shock absorber to the life of the congregation as they endure the storms and the trials and the turbulence of just doing life together. Because when you get a bunch of people together, stuff happens. (laughs) Thank you, brother. People get on each other's nerves. They sin against one another. Sheep bite and fight. And leaders of the church are privy and hear all of the problems, not only in the individual lives of the sheep, but the problems between the sheep. And there are men who don't fly off the handle. They don't overreact and they don't underreact. They are they're sober-minded and they're self-controlled. Doesn't that kind of follow? It goes together. They're men that can control their desires and their temper and their, their expressions, their, their appetites. They're respectable. Again, they have a good reputation. They're a good example. Not a perfect example, but a good example. They're hospitable. And that word hospitable in the original language is an interesting word. We think of it, because we don't really have a word, so this is kind of the closest English word to what's going on there in the Greek. We think of hospitable meaning that, ah, it just has a bunch of people over all the time, and certainly that's part of it. But literally, this word means, in the original language, means a love of strangers. So he loves people that are not like himself. He's not the guy that only hangs around with people that are kind of in his socioeconomic demographic. He has a burden for all types of people. And doesn't this follow? Because just in chapter 2, we talked about how Paul is encouraging the church to be the type of place that prays for all types of people because Jesus died for all types of people. And leaders, the leaders of the church, need to have an eye towards all types of people. All types of ethnicities, all types of socioeconomic backgrounds, all types of people groups. And they need to love all types of people. He needs to be able to teach. More on this in a moment. This is one area that may distinguish, I think does distinguish an elder from things that we want to see in every man in the church. He's able to rightly handle God's word. He's not a drunkard. And I don't think this just applies specifically to alcohol, although clearly it applies to that. He's not a man who is given to drunkenness. But that I think this speaks in a sense to the tempting things that are out there in the world. And he is not a man 
who is tossed to and fro. He's able to handle the pressures of things that might tempt him, and they don't have sway over him. So a man that is not a drunkard isn't just a man who appropriately is able to resist being drunk on alcohol or drugs or something like that, but he's a man who's able to not, he doesn't give his life away to, you know, some hobby or video games or he doesn't neglect his life because he's addicted to pleasure and recreation or hunting or college football or whatever. And do you see how none of those things in and of themselves are evil, but a man can be given over to being addicted to these things. And he needs to be the type of man who has uh, control of his appetites. He's not violent, but gentle. Again, he's not given to great fluctuation. He's not quarrelsome. He's not looking for a fight. He's not the man who always needs to be proven right. He's not dying on secondary hills. He understands what the main thing is, and he he doesn't make a big fuss out of things that aren't necessarily essential. Certainly, he has opinions and he has convictions, but he's approachable. He's not grumpy, right? He's not he's not uh, he's not Dennis. He's not uh, what's the guy? Dennis the menace, the neighbor, Mr. Wilson, right? Get off my lawn, kids, right? That's not him. He's, he's gentle. He's not a lover of money. He's not in ministry for financial profit and gain. He doesn't fleece the sheep. He doesn't, he doesn't try and use his platform of ministry for his own personal gain. And I mean, we just see horrible examples of that in notable national ministries and prosperity gospel preachers who are not preachers at all. They're false teachers. And he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Because, Paul says, if he doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so his home, his children, his marriage, his life, again, not perfect. And this is where it gets very personal, because I I look at my own life, and I see certainly inconsistencies and areas where I fail often. But in a general way, he is not a different man behind closed doors than he is in public. And he is leading his family in a way that it, it's not inconsistent. It commends his ability to lead the church. And he is a good representation of what it means to be a husband and a father. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So he's not a, a man who's just recently converted. I think he needs to have some, some, a few years underneath him and some grit and some calluses on his spiritual hands, so to speak. And he needs to have proved that he can resist the world and he can live sober-mindedly. And then, summing all of this up, Paul says that he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The worst thing is to have leaders who have a bad reputation publicly. Because then... Do you see how this undermines the gospel? You look at that man and you say, well, that guy's an elder, or that guy's a pastor. Well, what type of church is that if that guy who's that type of crook maybe in his uh, personal life, that, that besmirches the witness of the gospel? So you see here that elders are mature examples of what it means to be a Christian. They're things that we want to see really in every man in the church. But secondly, I want us to see that elders aren't just mature examples. They're also, el- they're also men who know God's word and are able to teach it. 
Note there verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. It says that an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, all those things we want to see all men in the church pursuing. But then there is this ability that is given to God, and Paul says he must be able to teach. Keep your finger there in 1 Timothy and just flip two books over. So go to 2 Timothy and then Titus. Titus chapter 1, where Paul is writing to another young pastor, and he is giving him a list that sounds very similar to what he's just given to 1 Timothy. And Titus, much like Timothy, is a young pastor that Paul has left to uh, pastor and shepherd and to build the church and to appoint elders. And this is what he says in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, this is going to sound very familiar, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Again, doesn't that sound very familiar? Then read verse 9. It says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So again, we have this list where Paul says, look, this guy needs to be a good representation of what it means to follow Jesus. Not perfect, but a good example of what it means to live the Christian life. And he must be able to teach in 1 Timothy 3.2 and in Titus chapter 1, Verse 9, he must be able to have a firm grasp on sound doctrine so that he can correct bad doctrine and lead people into a growing understanding of what it means to be a Christian. So the one qualification that we need to look for in elders that might not be present in every man in the church is that he needs to be able to handle God's word rightly. Because, listen to this, this is critical. The church is not to be led by men by force of their own charisma or personality. The church is to be led by mail carriers who are merely delivering God's word to God's people. So the church is to be led not by the force of a man but by the truth of God's word. And elders and pastors lead by delivering God's word. The church is to be led by God's word and God's spirit doing his work with his word. Do you see that? That's why it is so important for a man to be able to teach and to deliver God's word. Now, what does this mean? I don't think it means that it is absolutely necessary that an elder is necessarily particularly gifted in regular Sunday after Sunday pulpit ministry or preaching in front of a large group, although certainly it includes that. I certainly think that there is room for men who are elders who don't necessarily uh, have the type of gift set or teaching gift where they would get up Sunday after Sunday in front of a large group. Teaching, I think, is defined a little bit more broadly in the life of the New Testament. It's a man who understands good doctrine and he is able to disciple and lead other believers in a good understanding of that truth. He's able to recognize error, guard the church from it, and keep people along with the other elders 
going along the path of good doctrine. So in the context of our church life, it might be a, it's a man who is able to meet and disciple one-on-one, a younger Christian, or he's able to meet and share the gospel with in, in an effective and fruitful way uh, with an unbeliever. Or maybe he's leading a community group and he can facilitate discussion between Christians as they grow in their understanding of the word. I think all of these are expressions of a man's ability to teach. So I want us to guard ourselves from thinking that this means that a man necessarily has to be a Sunday after Sunday preacher or have that type of of gift. Now, if all of the people that were gifted in that particular expression of teaching in the church, you know, had laryngitis that Sunday, then I think that the elder, even if it's not his sweet spot, needs to be able to get up and to share from God's word in a way that would profit God's people. But see the point here that elders lead the church by their understanding of the truth. I don't think this means that a man needs a seminary degree. I think it means that he's got good instincts for understanding what is true and right. And he, along with the other elders, can lead the church in a right understanding of the truth. And then finally, elders are men. Which means that they are not women. We just looked at last week about how Paul established, and I think this is following along from his teaching in chapter 2. He says in verse 11, he says, I do not permit a woman to have authority. Let me just read it. He says in verse 11 of 1 Timothy 2, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And so what what is really, and we're going to look at this in a moment, what are the primary duties of elders? It is to lead and teach, to exercise spiritual oversight and godly authority in the church, and to teach. And those are the very things, that's what it means to be an elder. And those are the very things that Paul says women should not do. And the reason Paul says women should not do them, and I want to hit this again, is not because women are less than or not as good of leaders or can't understand the Bible or aren't as good of a teacher, but he says because God before the fall has a complementary design for men and women, Adam was formed first and then Eve. And so God has an order. Men are to be the humble Christ-like servant leaders and women are to submit to the righteous Christ-like leadership of men in their homes as their husband or fathers and in the life of the church, the elders who lead and teach and serve and give oversight to the congregation. So elders are men. And then finally, elders are more than one. I don't have this up there, but notice that elders are men. It's not elders are, is the man. (laughs) Elders are men. There's, every time the word elder or pastor or overseer is mentioned in the New Testament, it's mentioned in the plural. So we need more than one man leading the church. And the way it works out here at Crosspoint is that we have multiple elders. We are led as a church by a plurality of elders. So although I am the lead elder or the lead pastor, I am not sort of like a little mini Protestant version of the Pope. I don't have singular authority over Crosspoint. Although I have great influence, clearly. I mean, I, I, along with, well, the, the Lord planted this church, but I am the founding planting pastor of the church, and the guys certainly follow me very humbly. But, but if I come up with some whack idea, the other elders can say, no, we're not doing that. And then I have to sit there and shut my mouth right? And that's good. It protects the church from one man, from him having some 
a crazy idea about what should happen. So a few other thoughts about this before we move on to what elders are do, what elders do, is that remember, this is not superheroes. These are ordinary men who are good, not perfect examples of the Christian life. Notice, and this is where many churches in our culture go awry when they choose their leaders, that these men are not necessarily business leaders or men who are successful in some sort of position in the secular world in leadership roles. Paul does not say, look, you guys have a building project coming up, so choose a man who's, you know, he's the president of the Chamber of Commerce, and get a guy who owns a construction company, and then get this guy and this guy because he's good at this. He says, Get men, choose men who are good examples of what it means to follow Jesus and have a good understanding of God's word. And they're wise. And they will then draw upon the wisdom of those in the congregation. But leadership in the church is not based necessarily on their secular position, but on their ability to be good examples of what it means to follow Jesus and handle God's word. And the way it works out at Crosspoint is we think it is important to have the majority of the elders at our church to be men who are not employed by the church. So there are two pastors on staff, myself and Will Hawk, who are elders of the church. We have some younger pastors who are on their way, Lord willing, to becoming becoming elders. But then we have three men who are not employed by the church, who are men who have secular jobs, who do not work as full-time pastors that are lay elders. And we think that it is good for the culture of the church to have the majority of the elders be men who are not employed by the church. We think this decentralizes the sort of us versus them or the possible sort of weirdness that can happen when, think that, when people think that all you that work at the church are making all the decisions. We think that it's good to, to push that out and to make the majority of the elders not be men who are employed by the church. So those are what elders are. They're mature examples of the Christian life who know God's word and are able to teach it, and they are a plurality of men. What do the elders do from this text that we see? Well, we see that elders preach, teach, and pray. That's the primary thing that elders are called to do, preach, teach, and pray. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 6, and we see uh, this this progression in the life of the early church, and we see this, this emphasis on the priority of pastoral ministry in the life of the church. So the setting in Acts chapter 6 is that the early apostles, now remember, this is apostles, capital A, these are 12, 13, later on 14 men who are especially commissioned by God, commissioned by Jesus to be the men who establish the New Testament church, and write the New Testament. They are a one-time particular group of men who are commissioned by God. They're dead. There are no more apostles alive. It's the 12 men who were with Jesus during his earthly ministry. One of them fell off at the end, and then another, Matthias, was chosen after uh, uh, Judas uh, uh, rebelled against Jesus. And then Paul becomes an apostle when Jesus returns from heaven to make an appearance to him. And these are men who were with Christ during his earthly ministry, saw his resurrection, had a face-to-face encounter with the resurrected Christ, and had been especially commissioned to plant the church and to write the New Testament. They all die 
And the leadership role of the apostles, which was a special one-time authority, is transferred then to elders in a lesser degree. Of course, elders can't write scripture and have the authority of apostle. But they are the leaders of the church later on. But at this particular point in the development of the New Testament church, the apostles are still on the scene. And they have this task as elders to preach and pray and teach and lead the church. And what's happening is the gospel spreading, people are coming to Christ, and there were logistical problems. So in verse 1 of Acts chapter 6, it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose, and the Hellenists were Greek-speaking uh, uh, Jews, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right... The twelve, meaning the apostles, summoned all the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Not because they were above it, but because the church would suffer if the men who were tasked with preaching and teaching and leading the church were not able to study God's word and give themselves to that important task of preaching and teaching and leading. And so they said, that it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, verse 3, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so that is where then this role of deacons is established. We're going to look at next week, where these deacons become people who care for the physical and logistical needs of the church. In this particular sense, these deacons were table servants. They were waiters. They were those who helped to manage food distribution to keep these two groups of widows fighting with one another. Because if there was discord in the church, how could the church be a display of the gospel to an onlooking world if you have a bunch of widow ladies, you know, busting each other's chops, right? Nothing worse than two grandmas fighting with each other. You don't want grandma mad at you, and you don't want grandma mad at the other grandma. That somehow sullies the witness of the church. And the apostles, who are the forerunners to these elders, say, we need people to come help us take care of these physical needs so that we can preach and teach. And then if we go back to 1 Timothy If we jump ahead a couple chapters in 1 Timothy 5, we read in verse 17 where Paul says, Let the elders... 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And I think what he's saying there is that they are going to lead the church by their preaching and teaching. And so the task of elders is to preach, teach, deliver God's word, be clear about doctrine, disciple the church in a right understanding of God's word, and as we saw back in Acts chapter 6, pray. One of the things that we do every time we gather as pastors and elders is we work through the directory of members at Crosspoint where we take your little picture and if you're a member of Crosspoint, you're in this little directory, little black and white photo about the size of a postage stamp. Don't worry, we're not looking at any blemish on your face or anything like that and we're looking at your face and we're working through a couple pages and we are praying for you on a weekly basis and tomorrow night all of the elders, the lay elders, all of us are going to gather together and we're going to pray 
for a large number of people in the church. And the next time we get together, we're going to pick up where we left off and we're going to pray and we're going to consider your lives and we're going to care for you and we're going to say, have you seen that person? How are they doing? Let's pray for them. Do you know of anything in their life that needs to be prayed for? And we're going to pray because the task of elders is to preach and teach and pray and care for the sheep spiritually. And then... The second thing that elders do, and of course this follows from this, is that elders shepherd. They care for the sheep. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5 where there is this beautiful text about the role of elders. This is now Peter, another apostle writing his letter, 1 Peter, and he says in 1 Peter 5 verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as partakers in the glory that is going to be revealed... Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So we see there that elders are to shepherd, verse 2, they're to shepherd the flock, they're to care for, counsel. We, all of us, find ourselves in situations where we need spiritual care and counsel and encouragement. There are always wounded sheep among us, or there are always sheep that have perplexing situations. And part of the elder's role is to facilitate pastoral care in the lives of the sheep. Now, what does this mean practically for a church like Crosspoint? Well, I was with a group of pastors at the end of this week doing a little workshop down in South Georgia, and we were talking about just Crosspoint and how we have been a church now for 11 years, April of 2005, actually a few weeks, months before that, in February, March, April of 2005, Crosspoint started as a little core group meeting in our living room, and it was a bit, a bit smaller than the group of people that is in this room right now. And it, then we met, our first Sunday was April 17th, 2005. We rented a school up in Harris County, and we just met, and it was a larger group of people, and then it just kind of slowly, steadily has grown. And so how do a few elders shepherd a growing congregation of not 10 and 20, but now hundreds of people? Friends, this is a difficult task. And in one sense, this is a responsibility of all of the church, That's why we call our meetings when we get together as members one another meetings because the Bible is full of exhortations about how Christians are to care for and be concerned with one another. And do you know that the Bible says that you as a Christian who is part of a local church, and we're going to talk about what it means to be part of a local church a little bit more specifically in just a few minutes, but that you as a Christian who are part of a local church, Galatians 6 says that you should have a prioritized eye and heart towards other members of your local church. Not because Christians shouldn't care about people on the outside. Of course we do. But one way that we primarily care about people on the outside is by caring for people on the inside so that we become a representation, a kind of family, Christ-centered aroma to an onlooking world so that as we care for one another, people on the outside say, I want to be part of that. So do you see that? That you, if you're a Christian, should be a part of a local church and you should have a prioritized eye and heart on how you might serve other members of that local church so that God would use that as a display to an onlooking world. 
So think about that. In a sense, how we care for one another is evangelism. And we should care for one another. And it works out practically in the life of this church is that the elders certainly want to care for all people, but certainly we cannot do this. And so we have lay leaders in the church, community group leaders, Bible study teachers, just wise older Christians that we are constantly trying to link people up with. And we have such great examples of this at Crosspoint. One of the great blessings in the life of Crosspoint, when we started this church 11 years ago, I was in my mid-30s. I was 34 years old. And I and Jennifer, I think, were probably the two, at least two of the, if not the oldest people in the church. That was a young church. And by God's grace, we now have people who are seasoned. Let's put it that way, right? A little bit older than me. I'm now 45. And praise God for that. Because you know what God in his kindness has done for this church? He's given people to this church who have got some years under their belt. They're men that know how to weather the storm. They're women who have, have, have dealt with hard pregnancies and difficult children to raise and hard marriages and they're people that have calluses on their hands and they've weathered the storm and and their and their hearts are still soft and and they love Jesus and they're good examples of what it means to be a Christian and they have a burden for younger souls and this church is full of men and women who are eager to care for and take under their wing younger Christians. And that is a great blessing and a great delight. And that together, not just the elders, but the whole church together cares for one another. And it is the elders' responsibility to empower and to release and to let other people care for one another because we have this strange little culture in the South where that, and we just want to reject this at Crosspoint, where it's like the prayers don't count, or the phone call doesn't count, or the hospital visit doesn't count, unless it's from the senior pastor, right? I, I served on staff at a church where it was like that, and it was just like this. Everything else was kind of the JV, and everybody gained their, whether or not they were truly loved in the church, as to whether or not the pastor called on them. Let me just tell you, I love you all, but if I and the other pastors, if I spent all of my time attending to every little need that might in those cultures require the attention of the senior pastor in a church this size, I would be slobbering in the fetal position in the corner, like non-responsive. And, and my preaching would suffer, the teaching would would, would, would begin to tail off. Some of you might say, oh, it already has, Brad. What are you talking about? <laughs> and the most important thing that the church should be built on will suffer. And then the church becomes ingrown as a bunch of people who just want their needs met by one or two or three professional vocational Christians and it turns that church in on itself and that church ceases to be a witness for the gospel to an onlooking world. Friends, don't we, 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 we all have examples of that, don't we? And we want to fight against that. We want to fight against that. Elders shepherd the church, not as all-star individuals who are aware of every problem in the church, but by empowering and releasing and connecting members in the church to one another so that they can shepherd one another just as faithfully. Elders set a good example. We've talked about that already. In addition to shepherding, there's just a good example of what it means to follow Jesus. Let's breeze through that one since we've talked about it a lot. 
Then fourthly, what do elders do? Elders exercise oversight. They protect the church. This oversight, this leadership means that at times they have to make decisions that will be unpopular. They have to, as a united plurality of men, think about where the church should go, decisions that the church should make, and they protect the church spiritually. Part of that is just practically worked out. For example, we have this resource room with, I don't know, what is it, Will, a hundred and something books in there, 140 books I think we counted up the other day that um, and there's many more books, Lord willing, in the future of the church that will be in that. But do you know that there are a lot of books that are not in that resource room? Because there are a lot of books out there that we think teach destructive and wrong things. And part of our responsibility as a church is to try and guard your hearts, guard the go- doctrinal, guard the teaching door of this church so that what you are exposed to is good and right. Right? And it means us being aware of things that may be very popular, that may fly off the shelves at Lifeway, but are not good. And sometimes part of the burden of leadership is telling a person that what they want to study or what they want to read in their community group, although we understand why they may be attracted to it, is not as good as as this other resource. And I've been in those conversations, and those are difficult conversations to have. But friends, if you have elders who are just there to affirm you and pat you on the back and make you happy, you don't have elders. You have people that are scared of the opinion of man. And you need elders who are brave, who are insightful, who are wise, who are discerning, who have their finger to the pulse to bad teaching out there, and they exercise oversight because they are tasked with guarding the sheep from the world and the bad stuff that's out there, right? They need to be men who understand the times, as it says in the Old Testament, and they know what Israel or the church should do. They're aware of things. They put their fingers on things, and they take stands against cultural trends that are bad for the church. They shepherd, they watch, they protect. So what is at stake? And we end with this. What's at stake, friends, is the care of souls. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 20 as he's getting ready to leave this Ephesian church. And he, this church that he's planted, that now he's established Timothy as the pastor there, so that he might gather other pastors around him. Listen to what he says as he's saying goodbye to these Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. He's talking to these elders, overseers, pastors of the church in Ephesus, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. And so Paul is saying that I'm going to leave and there's going to be wolves out there and they're going to come and they're going to come in to try and destroy the church. Now, here's my experience with modern-day wolves. Wolves don't generally announce themselves as wolves. Hi, Brad. I'm a visitor today at your church. I'm a wolf. Here's my plan. I'm going to become part of this church for about six months, and I'm going to sort of stealthily, you know, try and discourage and rile up discontent and disunity and wreck this place. 
When's the next membership class? Can I come? Never had that happen. In fact, I've also realized that many wolves sometimes aren't even aware that they're wolves. But Paul says here that the role of the pastor is to protect the church from wolves. A wolf in our context may be a cultural idea or force that infiltrates into the church. And we need to take a stand against that and say, no, what's at stake is the care of people's souls. Go to Hebrews chapter 13, a verse that keeps me up at night. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. The writer of Hebrews says this in the context, I believe, is to church leadership and to the congregation. He says in Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So what's going on there? The writer of Hebrews, whoever it is, is saying that the role of the leaders of the church, the elders, the pastors, the overseers, is to keep watch over your soul because someday they're not only going to have to stand before God and give an account of their own life, they're going to have to give an account of your life. Now this brings up a host of implications. One is, I think implicit in this, is meaningful, real church membership. Because who are the pastors and elders of Crosspoint? To whom does this apply to for us? Who are we ultimately responsible for in this Hebrews 13, 17 sort of way? Well, in one sense, like we are all our brother's keeper, right? I mean, we care about all people everywhere. Anybody out there, we, we feel a sense of Christian obligation to, to care for their soul. But in this sense, I don't think I'm responsible for all 7 billion people that live on the planet pastorally. I don't think on Judgment Day, I'm going to stand before the Lord and I'm going to have to give an account of how I cared for all of those people. Okay, so it's not that. Well, then what is it? Is it everybody in the United States? Well, certainly not. Is it everybody in Is everybody, in, is it everybody who just walks through this door and visits on a Sunday? Well, how can I really care for their soul? How can the other pastors and elders care for their soul unless they, in some sense, know them? So I think implicit in this is that if you are a Christian, you need to be in a relationship with a group of people called a local church who has appointed and submitted to a specific group of people called elders so that you can be cared for by them because they are accountable for you. If you are, I'm just going to say it, and then you're going to get frustrated, and maybe you're going to get offended, and it's going to be good for you. If you are a Christian, and you are not a member of a church, you cannot obey this verse. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm saying you are hamstringing your ability to be a Christian in community. Because who's really responsible for you? 1 Corinthians 5 talks about this man who's having this illicit affair with his father's wife. And Paul says, you Corinthian church are sinning because you're putting up with this guy. Put this man out of the church for the sake of his own good so that God might use his excommunication being put out of the church as a means to maybe cause him to come to repentance so that his flesh will be destroyed and so that he will repent so that he'll come back into the church. Well, if there's something to be put out of, there must be something to be put into. But if you're just on the 
edges and nobody really knows your name and you're just a chronic Christian attender, if you fall into some lapse or sin, which is possible for everybody, don't think that can't be you, what means do we as a church have to call you to accountability? (laughs) I love you all. I love you. And then he says in verse 17, the end, he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. The care of souls is on the line. You being a connected, committed, known, authenticated Christian who's part of a local church, what's at stake is the care of your soul and the care of other souls around you who you, if you are a Christian, are biblically responsible for. And then finally, I end with this. What What's at stake? The display of the gospel. Very quickly, just go to 1 Timothy 3, down to the end of the chapter, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things. What are these things? It's what's preceded it. Verses 1 through 7, qualifications of elders, and then 8 through 13, which we're going to look at next week, the qualifications of uh, deacons. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things, meaning these things about church leadership, to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So know what leadership qualifications are in the church so that you may know how to behave in the household of God. And look how he describes the household of God, which is the church. It is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so the church is merely a pillar, a post A buttress that holds something up. And what does that hold up? It holds up the truth. And what is the truth? The truth is the gospel. The reason we exist, the reason we gather is not merely for ourselves, but because we want to put on display the good news of the gospel that we have read about, that we've sung about, that we've prayed about. And this is the gospel. The gospel is that we, by nature, are all sinners and God is holy. God has created us and he is holy and good and righteous and he has planned for this fall. In fact, he created this world with the purpose of allowing it to fall so that he might bring glory to himself by saving a great number of people from their sin by sending Jesus, his son, the perfect God-man to come and live where we have all disobeyed. Jesus completely obeys and lives this perfect life where we all stumble in many ways. Jesus is blameless, unstained, holy, set apart from sin and sinners, and then lays down his life, fully God, fully man, on the cross to bear the punishment of a holy God that should have been ours. And he satisfies it because he's holy and good and righteous, infinitely so. He has enough righteousness to more than satisfy all of the wrath of God for all of the sin of all those who would ever turn and trust in him. And Jesus on the cross does that. That's this truth that the church is holding up. And he doesn't stay dead, but proving that he's innocent and that God was pleased with his work. He rises again in victory over sin, death, and the grave and now reigns as the victorious king and commands all people all people from every tribe and tongue and nation to turn from trusting in themselves and to put their hope in him. Friends, that's the truth. That's the good news. That's the message of the Bible. That's what it's all about. And our life together 
how we treat one another, how we submit to one another, how we choose leaders is all meant to serve, to lift up that great truth. So what's at stake in choosing wise leaders and good leaders that meet these qualifications? Friends, the very display of the gospel itself. 23 years ago, I've told this story many times. 23 years ago, I was a young lieutenant stationed at Fort Benning, Georgia, doing infantry training. I didn't have much money in my checking account. And I met a girl, quickly fell in love, quickly knew that she was the one I wanted to marry. And so I went ring shopping. And I'm not going to tell you how much I spent on that ring, but I will tell you that I spent everything I had except for $100. I emptied out my checking account, left myself $100 to get myself through another month of Top Ramen or whatever else, you know, that I was going to eat. And I spent every dime I had on a ring. And I went to Schomburg Jewelers here in, is that right, Schomburg Jewelers? Here in Columbus, and I bought a ring. And when I went in to buy that ring, I was posed many questions, of which I had no idea how to answer. One of them was, What type of setting do you want the diamond to sit in? And apparently that's that's a whole that's a there are a whole host of answers to that question, right? Well, I chose a particular setting and I I think I did okay and she's she's still wearing the ring. Okay, anyway. (laughs) I know this. Not that it's the biggest diamond in the world because I was a twenty two year old young lieutenant, didn't have much. But in the last 23 years, nobody has looked at her ring or any ring that's on any girl's finger and said, oh my, what a nice setting. Look at those prongs. Look at those prongs that are holding up that diamond. Wow, look at that. Oh my, what nice prongs you have on your wedding ring. Friends, what we're doing, we're just mere prongs holding up the diamond of the most glorious truth of Christ. The church does not exist for itself. It exists to put on display the very thing that the world needs. And we do that more faithfully when we heed these scriptures and when we choose leaders among us like this. Let's pray. Father, help us as a church understand this better. Who is sufficient for these things? Who can live up to this list of qualifications fully? Lord, by your grace, would you give us more men? More men in this church pursuing these characteristics? May you give us more men in this church who are lay elders who feel an aspiration to serve this church in this noble way. As our church grows, we need more men. Give us more men, I pray, to serve as under-shepherds of the great chief shepherd, Jesus, so that we might be a better display of the gospel to an onlooking world, so that we might lift up the diamond of the truth more clearly. Do this, I pray, for the glory of your name, for the sanctification of your bride and for the salvation of the lost. In Jesus' name, amen.